stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Hey folks, Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Our number in Edmonton, 780-496-0063 in Calgary, 403-974-8255. By the way, we got one eye on the nation's capital. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole set to speak shortly uh, following a caucus meeting today, the first since the election, and an opportunity for conservative MPs to kind of speak freely about how that election played out and to what extent they have some confidence in their leadership. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. In the meantime, let's talk about daylight saving time. The question will be asked, do you want Alberta to adopt year-round daylight saving time, which is summer hours, eliminating the need to change our clocks twice a year? So it's not just asking us if we want to stop changing the clocks. It's pretty specific about landing on one of those sides. Some say keep standard time. Some say keep daylight saving time. Uh, So this is kind of a two-in-one question. Yes or no, stop changing the clocks, and then, okay, if you want to stop changing the clocks, then we get daylight saving time. So our next guest, though, says there are some potential implications to that, that there's a case to be made for ending the practice of changing the clock, but maybe it really is standard time that we should land on. Dr. Michael Antle is a professor in the psychology department uh, at the University of Calgary, also a member of the Hotskiss Brain Institute, and specializes in the area of circadian rhythm and how important sleep is to our lives. Dr. Antle, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi there. So obviously, uh, you know, you follow this uh, very closely. What's something you're watching for here? What's your particular concern about uh, the implications of this? So great question. Um, The the thing that I guess uh, I'm most concerned about is that a lot of people actually don't understand just what winter daylight saving time is going to feel like because we've never done this before. Uh, We know what standard time in the winter is like. We know what daylight time uh, in in the summer is like. But this change to winter um, daylight time is going to be hard for us to deal with. So a lot of people think, you know, the clock changes are bad. And I've been advocating to get rid of clock changes for years. But um, the problem is, it, we want to stick with the right time. And Alberta's actually, we're quite shifted relative to the time we follow. So our days are already quite delayed. And moving to daylight time in the winter is going to make us even more delayed. So our circadian clock, the controls when we wake up, go to sleep, it's going to follow the sun. And it's going to be really hard with those late dawns. So dawn in Calgary in December is going to be about 9.30 on daylight time. And we'll, we have to be at work before that. We have to be at school before that. We have to be commuting behind our, our, the wheels of our car before that. And we're going to be very tired um, in the winter. So places have tried this. Russia tried this in 2012, and they did it for two years. And then after two years of experiencing long, dark winter Russian mornings, they gave up on it and moved to standard time because it was just intolerable. They had no idea how bad it was going to be until they tried it. So I've been saying we should probably learn from their mistake and, and not go down the same road. It's an interesting point because, you know, I, I think maybe people think of this question as, do we want to stop changing the clocks, yes or no? But But this is very specific that do we want to stick with what is essentially summertime where it's it's uh, you know we, we use the daylight in the evening and obviously in those winter months you know we, we we're going to see that on the morning side as you say I mean the idea of you know nine or nine thirty sunrise for example is maybe not something that we've really thought through do you think that's right. And, you know, we're lucky in Calgary, other places in Alberta that are further north and west, like Grand Prairie, won't see the sun until almost 1030. Wow. That, that's a big change, isn't it? It, it is. And that's, like I said, it's going to be very hard for, for those people to deal with. 
Um, so uh, the best choice would actually be standard time, but it's not on the ballot. And yeah. really, it, it should be two questions. Uh, it should be, do you want to get rid of the time change? And I think everybody can get behind that. But then the you're left with a choice after that when you decide to get rid of the time changes, which one is the best one to stay on. And every uh, sleep organization and, and circadian rhythms uh, organization have been advocating for years uh, for permanent standard time. And it's more important for Alberta than other jurisdictions because we're already shifted west of the time we follow. Plus, uh, Calgary and Edmonton are uh, two of the most northern cities in Canada. So we're going to feel those that effect even more acutely because we have such short days relative to other major Canadian centres. Well, it's interesting, and back to the question itself, because if the answer is no, it, it, it could be seen as an endorsement of the status quo. It could also be seen as a, as a preference for standard time, but there's no way of really knowing. So where, where might a no vote leave us, do you think? Well, with a no vote, it's, it's the status quo, like you said, um, and it's not a great choice, but we've been presented with a bad choice and an even worse choice. And, and so that's why, I've, like I said, even though I've been advocating to get rid of the clock changes for years, I'm advocating to stick with it now because the alternative that we we're presented with here is going to be so much worse having daylight time in the winter. Well, and, and I think part of it is, well, there's probably two things because, you know, we see the spring forward as, you know, we lose an hour of sleep. And, and so we don't like that. I think that's part of it. There's also, you know, the idea that, you know, the, the sun setting at, at 430, you know, in, in the winter is uh, almost kind of depressing or something that somehow we're, we're going to be better off or we're going to like it more if, you know, the sun sets at 530 or 6, for example. But w- what do you make of those two two arguments or concerns? So um, the, the time change, everybody does talk about, you know, losing that hour of sleep. And it's sort of an easy way to conceptualize it. But it's actually more insidious than that because um, – Many people have had a bad night's sleep, and you feel bad the next day, but the next night you get a good night's sleep, and you feel fine the day after. But that time change in the spring, um, it actually makes you feel bad for a few weeks. And the reason for that is because our circadian clock is still following the dawn. Uh, Now, uh, when we do the time change in in March, our dawn is around... um, just about 7 a.m. here in Calgary, uh, about 6.53. And then the next morning, it's closer to 8 a.m. at 7.51. And your circadian clock is still following that sun, but your boss still wants you at the desk at the same time. So you're living uh, misaligned with your day for a few weeks. And it's not until um, about mid-April that our dawns get early enough to correct that misalignment. And so that's why that one hour in the time change in the spring is so hard on the body. It's not the, that you've lost an hour of sleep. It's that you're living misaligned with your, mm-hmm. with your day. And then take that and spread that over the whole winter. Uh, if we spread, if we take uh, daylight savings time throughout the winter time, that's going to get even worse because our dawns, they keep getting later and later and later as you get um, closer to the winter solstice. And so with the 9.30 uh, dawn, it's going to be hard for your body to get up and get to the office for 8 a.m. So instead of a few weeks of that misalignment, it's, it really might end up being a few months. That's right. It's five months. Yeah. So your preference then would be to, to stick with standard time. You're right. Not on the ballot, but that's, that's right. the thing that would be best. And if we were going to make that change, when is the ideal time to make that change? Well, when we uh, fall back with our clocks, it would be just to stay there. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, so UConn did the opposite. So last year they decided to stay on daylight time. And so uh, in about four weeks, we're all going to be um, uh, falling back on our clocks. Last year they decided not to, so they stayed on. So that, that would be the time to make the changes. You fall back and then you just don't spring forward the next year.
You wrote a long thread on your Twitter page. Uh, people can find you at Antle, D-R, Antle Doctor, um, about all of this. Is it your sense that we're kind of going into this referendum maybe blind or or the people aren't thinking about it as much as they need to? What's your sense of where we're all at collectively as we get set to make this big decision? Yeah, and talking to people out there, um, a lot of them will respond and say, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And I think that's generally what the public um, would respond when they when they hear these issues is they hadn't thought about what it's going to be like. A lot of people just think it's arbitrary um, and that it's just personal preference that uh, you just choose where you want to like you want in the morning or in the evening. But when you explain to them, especially people up north like in Grand Prairie with these 1030 sunrises, uh, they realize, wow, that's going to be really bad and really hard uh, to deal with. And uh, so now people are still stuck because they they realize they don't want daylight time. But as you said, a vote for uh, the status quo could be endorsing the clock changes or could be uh, a vote for standard time, but nobody really knows. So it's going to leave us with the clock change and we'll have to reconsider it later on. You know, other jurisdictions have made the decision this way. I mean, it's it's something Albertans have voted on in the past before. So, I mean, ultimately, I guess it's it's up to us to decide how we want to approach this. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, to to understand what the experts have to say about it is is important. I mean, is I don't know. Is is this kind of a, a messy way of of making a decision? Is there an ideal way of making this decision? Uh, well, I, I think it shouldn't really be a popularity contest. That um, really, you should uh, have the government instead going out to the different stakeholders, to the industry, um, uh, to to the public that would be part of the decision, uh, to the, the health experts, uh, to the businesses, to figure out uh, what would be best. And this is what they did the last time, is they had a commission when they decided to go from standard time to the clock changes to figure out if this is what we wanted to do. Um, so just leaving it up to um, the public is probably not the best idea. So I would I would think maybe they could use this referendum as part of the decision-making process, but they really do have to go talk to the businesses, talk to the healthcare experts, talk to the scientists, and try to make an informed decision. Well, there's still time before October 18th for people to, to do that research and hopefully make an informed decision. I guess we'll see where things go after that. Uh, Dr. Antle, again, thanks for your insight on all of this. I appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thank you. There you go, Dr. Michael Antle, a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary, also adjunct professor in the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology, and someone specializing in the realm of circadian rhythm. Uh, so offering his expertise on what this might all mean. As he said, I mean, I think it's important to talk to, to businesses, industries that are going to be affected by this. Look, I mean, let's be honest. I think both the Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames have, have been influential in, in shaping this debate because, you know, that, that's going to impact them. In terms of their schedule, when games air, you know, what time those uh, West Coast games air, and all of that stuff. I am not prepared to allow party and caucus infighting to get in the way of building a better future for our province and for all Albertans. And that is why I am announcing today that with a profound optimism for Alberta's future, I am resigning as Premier of Alberta, effective this Sunday evening. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Might be a little confused by that. I don't know if that voice is as recognizable as it once was. Uh, that was March 19th, 2014. Alberta Premier Allison Redford announcing her resignation. Now, I, I dredge all of this back up because, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. In approximately 10 days from now, 
Jason Kenney will have officially surpassed Alison Redford uh, in his time in office, his time as premier. But Jason Kenney finds himself in a similar position, albeit, I suppose, for all kinds of different reasons. One of the downfalls for Alison Redford was how low her approval rating had plunged, bottoming out at 18 percent in one poll. You know, given the, the infighting within the party, the division in the party, clearly those who no longer had confidence in her, the writing was on the wall uh, that she had to go. As much as she wanted to press on as leader, I mean, she had won the election in 2012. It just wasn't going to happen. So Alison Redford was unable to overcome a plunging uh, approval rating. Can Jason Kenney overcome that as we've seen recently there is division different kinds of division different circumstances obviously but there is division nonetheless within the united conservative party uh jason kenny looks to have avoided uh any kind of internal push to get rid of him uh, agreeing to to speed up to expedite that leadership review which will now happen in the spring of next year instead of the summer so is he safe until then Well, if we keep seeing poll numbers like the one we saw today, maybe we're inching towards uh, an Alison Redford kind of situation. These are some pretty bleak poll numbers uh, for Jason Kenney, not necessarily the UCP. And this is where it could get interesting with the party. People in the party see that, look, people still like the UCP, but man, oh man, they sure don't like the leader. I think that strengthens the case of those within the party who say maybe it's time for somebody else. Mind you. We are in the midst of a bit of a crisis here in Alberta. Uh, Is that kind of political upheaval uh, really a good thing right now? Perhaps not. Uh, But the latest poll numbers from Think HQ show that uh, Premier Kenny is awfully close to Alison Redford territory. Just 22 percent approve of the job the premier is doing. Only 6 percent say they strongly approve of the job he's doing. Uh, So the the negatives are, are bad right across the board. Urban, rural, older, younger, men, women, you name it. It's a lot of dissatisfaction for the leader right now. So joining us to talk more about these numbers, what it might all portend for Jason Kenney and the UCP. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Mark Henry. He's president of Think HQ Public Affairs. Mark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. So, look, I mean, you, you've been doing this a long time. You've seen the numbers for, for previous Alberta premiers. Where, where does this rank? Oh, this is in dangerous territory. We haven't seen numbers like this for almost a decade. And it was it was 2014. Alison Redford got the news that she had hit 18 percent approval and she resigned that day. There you go. It's not far off from that, is it? (laughs) It's margin of error away at 22 percent. When you factor in the margin of error, it's it's on par with uh, with Redford's numbers. So talk a bit about how we got to this point. Has he been following Jason Kenney's, you know, political fortunes uh, since he became premier? I mean, you know, certainly COVID has, has represented some some struggle for him and, and in fairness to other governments. But, you know, it seems as though he's had a really tough time getting Albertans on board with, with the decisions he's made. Yeah, I, I, I think COVID has really been the bane of his existence. Um, and, and you've seen his approval numbers drop immediately upon... Uh, the, the pandemic hitting us. It started in April of last year, and it's just been this steady decline. Uh, we saw a brief uptick in July, and that's you know the 
best summer ever. We're open for forever. Yeah. Um, and, and what had happened is when we were in field that late July, you know, it seemed to be working. Um, case counts were low. They're quite stable. People were happy to have all the restrictions gone. And then all of a sudden, the end of July, beginning of August, the case count started climbing. And, and with it, uh, you know, uh, the, the bump in popularity that the Premier got at the time disappeared almost immediately. And it crashed 16 points from there uh, in only two months. Um, wow. COVID, COVID really is a problem. And it, it's a problem for, frankly, all conservative governments. Uh, because COVID response is one of those issues that tends to unite progressives. Uh, progressives are almost universally supportive of increased public health measures in, in response to it, whereas uh, conservatives are split. Mm-hmm. There are some who want more health, uh, you know, sort of restrictions and that sort of thing, and others who are more about, you know, freedom and, and opening up the economy and so, so on and so forth. And that is very much the party that Jason Kenney's leading today, it's not the United Conservatives. They are very much the divided conservative party. Um, it's a two-headed monster. And, and this has been what he's been trying to ride the last year um, and, and very unsuccessfully. Well, and I think that speaks to the political gamble you just talked about and, and wanting to be the first to reopen, being the most aggressive in reopening. I mean, if it, if it worked, you know, he'd, he'd be reaping the political benefits. But there was so much risk to that decision that if it gone sideways, uh, that that, uh, that was going to really be a bad look on this government. It kind of feels like that's that's exactly what's happened here. Well, and, and, and it's almost more punching than that because it's not just a bad look on the government. It's not just politically uh, costly. There, there's a real human cost. Sure, there yeah. are people who are dying because of it. There are people in the hospital because of it. Uh, the healthcare system is under siege because of it. And that's something that I, I don't know whether voters are going to forget that you're willing to risk not only your own political future, but, but people's lives. You know, it's interesting because we tend to think that political parties, even political leaders, that they sort of have a core base of support. And maybe that's still true to some extent for the party Jason Kenney leads. But when you look at these numbers, it, it doesn't feel like it's true for him. Uh, 22% approval, just, you know, single digits when you talk about those who strongly approve of his leadership. Uh, so, I mean, does Jason Kenney have uh, any base to speak of at this point? I mean, at this point, the point the base has really slipped away, even in, in parts of the province where you would expect his numbers to be better. Um, central Alberta, you know, strictly rural Alberta, his approval doesn't break 30 um, percent among people who voted for the UCP in the last election. Uh, he's got over 60 percent disapproval. Um, that is a tough place to come back from. And, and I think. You know, for the Conservative Party, they have to ask themselves, you know, are the election's only 18 months away. Uh, so what is it in your best interest? Is it time to jettison a, a deeply wounded leader and try to get somebody who can bring this, you know, two-headed monster um, back in line before the election? Or do you just carry on and hope things get better and, and go into the election with the wounded leader? It, it'll be interesting to see how they approach it. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's hard to find any kind of positive spin here. I mean, you mentioned it. You, you look at rural areas. You look at those demographics where traditionally the party would do well, even those who voted UCP in the last election. You run through all the regions, all the demographics in the survey. I don't see any any good news here for Jason Kenney. No, I mean, Edmonton has typically been the most hostile area of the province to him. But today, Calgary is at the same level of support for the premier. This is hometown. Um, he, he's on par among men versus women. He's on par 
you know, even people who are 55 plus, which is a natural voter base for conservatives, uh, is 26 percent approval. Uh, those, those are just really, really damaging numbers. Some of the numbers that might also scare, you know, conservatives or those in the United Conservative Party, not just Jason Kenney's numbers, but Rachel Notley's numbers. And, and that becomes very relevant, I think, in, in the sorts of decisions that, that the UCP is going to make ahead of the next election. Rachel Notley uh, actually does does fairly well here. And, and her numbers have creeped up a little bit over the last four months. So she she has typically sort of moved around in this band around 40 percent approval. She's bumped up to 50 percent. Um, this wave of polling. And, and it's not insignificant in the sense that it, it's fairly deep uh, positive feeling. 32% strongly approve of her, 50% approve overall. Now, she's got a core of people who genuinely dislike her. There's 47% disapproval and 39% of that is strong. But, you know, if, if you're thinking about going into the next election, when you're going up a leader who, uh, up against a leader who's got 50% approval among the electorate and you're sitting at 20%, uh, you know, <laughs> leader is a big part of why people vote for the parties they do. Now, I mean, the next provincial election is still probably about a year and a half away. And I mean, a lot can happen in politics over 18 months, I think, as, as we've seen many times. But in terms of Jason Kenney recovering from this, as you mentioned earlier, it's quite a hill he has to climb, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's, it's an even bigger hill than what we saw with the gamble in July. Um, because there, you know, people initially thought it was working. They, they, his approval numbers started to recover. Now it has been just a colossal failure. I mean, we are getting support from the federal government. We've got army nurses coming in. Uh, I yeah. mean, you you do not have a failure in in policy at a government much deeper than that when you have to call in the reserves. Um, and and I think that there's also the issue of the human toll here. There, there have been a lot of people hospitalized, a lot of people who um, have died, uh, sadly, and and people who have also felt sort of what you'd call maybe a, a care deficit, who have been who've had their procedures bumped, who haven't been going to the doctor, they're not getting cancer screenings, that sort of thing. There, there's a, a lot of cleanup from this natural disaster that that Jason Kenney's going to have to deal with if he stays on as leader. Indeed. Well, much more on all of these numbers. ThinkHQ.ca is the website. Mark Henry, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All right, there you go. Mark Henry, uh, president of ThinkHQ Public Affairs. So uh, his thoughts on these uh, these poll numbers, which are, are not good news for the premier. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Now, it, it's easier to um, you know, distinguish various pipeline projects when they have uh, longer names assigned to them, right? Trans Mountain, Northern Gateway, Energy East, right? It's easier to keep those straight. Um, we've got some important pipelines, though, running to the United States that have much more mundane names, uh, like Line 3, for example. The Line 3 replacement project, uh, that's a big one. It uh, went into service officially on Friday. That pipeline is going to be uh, fully operational by the end of this month. So that, that's, that's big for Alberta. So Line 3 runs from Alberta through Saskatchewan, Manitoba, into uh, Minnesota. Now, Line 5 
is uh, an older pipeline project uh, that also runs into the United States and supplies a lot of refineries in the uh, Great Lakes region, uh, but importantly also goes back up into Ontario, provides supply to the big refinery in Sarnia, is really crucial in terms of supplying energy needs in Ontario, the Toronto Pearson Airport in particular, also for Quebec. So Line 5 is vitally important and has been in operation for some time. Now, Enbridge is the owner of that pipeline, and uh, they intend to make some improvements to that pipeline to keep it operational and protect waterways in Michigan. However, Michigan's governor uh, doesn't want it at all. Michigan uh, has moved to try to shut down the pipeline. So The two sides have been in talks. Those have kind of gone nowhere. And as things are maybe getting to a crunch here, the federal government is taking the step of invoking the 1977 pipeline treaty between Canada and the United States. Joining us to talk a bit more about this dispute and what invoking this pipeline uh, treaty means. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dennis McConaughey, a retired executive with TC Energy. He's an author on energy and climate policy uh, in Canada and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dennis, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. Um, we we kind of knew that this was in the government's back pocket. This card might get played at some point. What's the significance now of officially invoking this treaty? Well, I think it is um, somewhat ominous in the sense that um, a few weeks ago, um, the state of Michigan, led by Governor Whitmer, um, withdrew from mediation talks that had been going on between them and Enbridge court ordered mediation talks, and the court the court process was really about whether or not the state of Michigan had the authority to um, shut down the pipeline. And, and one can't underestimate how important this pipeline that has operated really since the early fifties in supplying conventional crude oil into not just Upper Great Lakes refineries, but really most of the refineries uh, that keep Ontario. Uh, supplied with refined products. So, you know, a really essential piece of infrastructure. Um, and the contention is that um, uh, even though for that length of time it's been regulated by federal, U.S., and Canadian entities, the governor of Michigan wants to assert uh, state control and wants to shut down this, this pipeline. Now, it's the, the part of the pipeline that's in dispute is the one that sits... Um, in the Straits of Mackinac, which is the water that separates the Upper Peninsula of Michigan with the, uh, uh, what we think of as the Peninsula of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And um, that uh, is uh, based on her belief that the pipeline could rupture, could uh, despoil the the Great Lakes, cause other impacts, etc. And even though Enbridge is in the process of trying to replace the way this pipe sits at the seabed, replace it by building an even more insulated tunnel that would run through the Straits of Mackinac. Um, the, this governor of Michigan is not willing to see that project through and put up with the as-is for the next two or three years. So what was ominous is that because they withdrew from mediation, uh, the federal government of Canada invoked this treaty, which, if it holds up, will compel the federal government of the United States, the Biden administration, to negotiate with Canada uh, to maintain this thing in service and basically take it out of the hands of the state. So that's what precipitated this action. It feels like 
there, it, it's a real standoff then that, that these uh, these media talks are, are not going anywhere. Is is that your perception? Uh, I, I don't believe that there's any likelihood that Gretchen Whitmer is going to uh, is going to stand down voluntarily. Um, I, you know, the current Secretary of Energy, a former governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, uh, had said, "Let the courts decide it." Um, in a way, this is too important to Canada to let the courts decide something that could have a perverse outcome, even though I do believe federal jurisdiction will be reaffirmed. Uh, so I think that when the government of Canada invoked this, I think it probably signals that they're genuinely concerned that they could have been a perverse result and they're not prepared to make that happen. And basically this now becomes a government-to-government negotiation between Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden. So the the, the treaty... It seems pretty clear, at least on the surface, that this is an existing pipeline crosses international borders. And that, that treaty in 1977, you know, it, it didn't preclude governments from saying no to future pipeline projects, but that existing projects that transported products across the border should be allowed to continue operating. How, is, is this a slam dunk case then for Canada or, or what, what might come of this? Well, uh, one needs to remember that this treaty existed and was put into place at the urgings of the Americans. But one time we're concerned that if their Alaskan gas was to ever traverse Canada, they didn't want to be vulnerable to Canada disrupting the flow of that gas in the United States. But it, it works both ways. So now, ironically, uh, it's going to be put into play for an oil pipeline that is essential for Canada's uh, energy security and, and its own economy, for that matter. Uh, all I can say is that I think in any plain face reading of the treaty would suggest that um, this um, pipeline should persist in operations. Um, there should be a reasonable uh, length of time for Enbridge to move forward with its tunnel uh, alternative. Um, the concern, of course, is the Biden administration could stretch out these uh, negotiations. They could try to invoke some kind of emergency language uh, if there was like a threatening safety concern, which I in this case, can be asserted, and it has been asserted by environmentalists, but I think is simply, you know, not all that credible, given the operating record of this pipeline over its, as I said, being in operations literally from the late 50s. So, I mean, it's a very nervous time, and it will really, I think, be a test of what kind of treatment uh, Canada can uh, expect from the Biden administration. I mean, it was one thing for Joe Biden to so glibly destroy uh, KXL, a pipeline that was still being built. This is a pipeline that he would be on side for shutting down that would cause enormous economic disruption and, and actual you know, physical uh, supply shortages in Ontario. It's it kind of unthinkable. And also, I would add, also, m- many parts of the upper Great Lakes region, including Michigan, rely on the products that are moved to Line 5. So, um, we can only hope that rationality applies, but but I think we can infer that there was real concern by the Canadian government, um, and they want to minimize their, their risks as much as possible, so they invoke the treaty. Yeah, you talk about this implications. They're serious indeed, right? I mean, there's obviously the propane that Michigan gets through this pipeline, you know, the refineries, the Great Lakes refineries that, that rely on this pipeline, but in particular... This would be a massive disruption in Ontario. The the refinery in Sarnia relies heavily on this, right? The the refinery at Sarnia, the the other ones that exist uh, uh, near Oakville, um, it it would be very costly and disruptive and and, and actually kind of chaotic 
um, because there isn't really, you know, uh, an alternative of supplying, you know, massive amounts of, of, of tanker trucks from Western Canada into Ontario. And there's limitations as to how much oil can be imported through what's known as Line 9, which is the Enbridge system that terminates in and around uh, Quebec City uh, and Montreal uh, that would be reversed and flow back into Ontario. Uh, that's not a um, – that can't replace what, what Line 5 represents to um, – to the sort of energy security of Ontario and parts of Quebec. Well, it's the thing, isn't it? I know the companies have been looking at possible contingencies if Line 5 goes down, but there, there's no good plan B here, is there? There's not a great plan B. It's all going to cost more money, and, um, you know, without you know getting into too much more jargon, you know, there's a part of the Enbridge system that goes, um, that does not go across the Strait of Mackinac, but again, that part of their system, you know, typically runs at capacity and, and, and moves, but their whole system is optimized to have Line 5 in operation. So it would be costly, disruptive, and, and especially going into the winter months, uh, really uh, uh, potentially imposing some really uh, unpredictable uh, uh, public safety risks, frankly, if uh, certain areas either can't afford or get actual supplies. So, I mean, all these points are going to be made but none of this is very compelling to Gretchen Whitmer, who made it an election commitment to close it down, uh, you know, contends that Henbridge is not a viable pipeline operator. And, of course, they have the support of all of those on the environmental side that, you know, anything that can detract from oil demand, you know, is something that they're all on for. So yeah. this will be a test of the Trudeau government's capacity to actually uh, be treated reasonably by the Biden administration. Yeah, so serious situation. Dennis, just a quick thought. I mentioned at the outset, uh, you know, we got some good news on the Line 3 pipeline expansion project. It went into service last Friday. They'll finish the work, we understand, this month. That, that's a big win, isn't it? It, it, it will be a... It, it, it is very positive news. I mean, it is... It, the scale of Line 3, it doesn't, you know... Um, it's not as it's nowhere near as much as even TMX, let alone what Kia Stone XL would have provided. But it is a welcome, positive addition that will put more cash back into Alberta, uh, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. Much more at your website, Dialogues on Canadian Energy. It's D-O-C-E dot C-A. I always appreciate the insight, Dennis. Thanks for making time for us here. Thank you, Rob. All right. All the best. Uh, That's Dennis McConaughey, former executive with uh, TC Energy, energy policy commentator, author as well. His most recent book, Breakdown, the Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's Future. Again, his website, Dialogues on Canadian Energy, D-O-C-E dot C-A. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.